When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, listener. For the last couple of weeks, we've been doing shows about the overdose crisis in this country, how to address it, how politics and feelings get in the way of keeping people safe. This show is the final piece in that series. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the others, go on back, check out what we've been up to. Our last piece was called The Case Against Harm Reduction. We'll be here when you're done. Lisa Dugard has been called Seattle's reformer-in-chief. And before I get into why, I think it's useful to know how someone becomes a reformer-in-chief in the first place. I know you may roll your eyes at this, but can I ask about your child prodigy days? <laughs> yeah, uh, eye-rolling definitely, but sure. You started taking classes at University of Washington when? Like, how old are you? I was 12. As a preteen... Lisa was studying political science, learning about the art of changing people's minds and reforming their governmental systems. On her first day of class, she panicked when she realized in college, there is no assigned seating. At 12, I was weird, right? For the first several years, everyone could tell that I was much younger. But having to be okay with that was important for me. Um, it definitely helped um, give me kind of an indifference to, you know, oh, no one else is doing this. That's all right. <laughs> you know, um, that has lasted. You know, I went from being a real conformist to being not. Decades later, the thing Lisa is trying to reform is the way Seattle handles homelessness and drug addiction. With a goal like that, you can see why it would help to be someone who thinks outside of the box. Residents of a Seattle, Washington neighborhood are up in arms over an illegal homeless encampment where... Over the last few years, Seattle's become known for these startling images. Pictures of people camped out in public, sometimes using drugs. Meanwhile, the unprecedented amount of drug abuse in Seattle is leading directly to a rise in violent crime. It all got worse after the pandemic. You get into these encampments, and, you know, I like to equate it to, like, Lord of the Flies. I mean, My shorthand for what we saw was worse than South Africa at the height of people being abandoned during apartheid. Um, it was horrendous. And those conditions are continuing in a lot of spaces. The question has been, what to do about it? And what do you fix first? They sit here and they do their drugs and I got to smell it. And every if you watch the news, you'll get the sense that for a lot of people, the thing that seems so outrageous, the thing people see is the drugs. 
using hard drugs in public seems like a violation of propriety so grave, it demands to be stamped out. It's the drugs. It's not a homeless problem. It's not a housing problem. It is a drug problem, and they need to address the drugs. You can feel the way people crave some kind of rule here, a rule that flips a switch and cleans things up all at once. But Lisa, she's got a very different solution. As a kid, could you have anticipated that years later, you'd end up as one of the foremost drug policy advocates in Seattle? No. And I mean, back then, I probably did think that, you know, if, if, you, if something is bad, you make a rule. Last week on this show, we spoke to someone who wants drug users out of her neighborhood. Today, Lisa's going to explain how she's giving them the tools to stay. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Lisa Dugard is a lawyer, but that doesn't really encapsulate what she's up to in Seattle. She leads something called PDA. It used to be known as the Public Defender Association. Now it's known as Purpose, Dignity, Action. This renaming is part of an intentional shift, an acknowledgement that Lisa and her colleagues are looking to operate outside of the criminal justice system. Her idea for helping drug users is all about avoiding the usual carceral approaches, too. A few years back, Lisa was one of the most prominent activists pushing Seattle to open a supervised consumption site. That is, a safe place where people can use drugs like heroin and fentanyl and keep from overdosing. In 2017, the city council set aside more than a million dollars to make this happen. But this supervised consumption site never opened its doors. So I asked Lisa, why? There was some community opposition, and that ended up being translated into a, an initiative to ban supervised consumption sites in King County unless a local city or town affirmatively took steps to invite or to welcome them. So, so to create a default, essentially, of no unless a city affirmatively established that 
they were approving the idea. That initiative ended up being defeated in litigation. So we were we were able to address and deal with the technical problems, you know, the legal challenges. Yeah. I mean, I read about this scene where people showed up in like scarves to protest. Was that was that common? No, it was not common. <laughs> and this is what was so notable. There was really muted opposition. The concept of harm reduction, meeting people where they are, moving people along was widely supported. There were a few community organizations that were alarmed about this, um, but they were a distinct minority and there was no political reason that this, you know, didn't advance. You said that the mayor really backed off the idea of a supervised consumption site, even though there was money in the budget for it. But I know at the same time, didn't the deputy U.S. attorney general write an op-ed basically saying that if a city like Seattle opened a supervised consumption site, it would face aggressive action mm-hmm. by the federal government? Yeah. Oh, so that was under the Trump administration. But just to be clear, Seattle did all kinds of things that the Trump administration didn't want. And that was like a mark of pride. So defy the Trump administration was generally speaking something that local politicians outbid each other to do, you know, be a city of refuge for immigrants, don't cooperate with ICE. You know, there was all manner of defiance of the Trump administration. Strangely, only this one, (laughs) Um, you know, seemed to land. And I don't think those of us who were working on this issue did not believe that the worry was about federal law enforcement consequences. The mayor at the time, Jenny Durkin, has a different memory of all this. She says it would have been irresponsible to have city contractors operating in direct violation of the feds. Whatever happened here, the fact remains, by the end of 2020, the idea of a standalone supervised consumption site was dead on arrival. At the same time, there was the pandemic going on. COVID had made Seattle's homelessness crisis even more visible. One estimate says that over the course of 2020, as many as 40,000 people ended up on Seattle's streets at one point or another. Before the pandemic, some of these people would have been booked into jail for public intoxication or loitering or some other low-level offense. Now, everything was out in the open. We saw massive public chaos and disorder that is just non-viable. You know, huge encampments, people engaged in very visible, clearly illegal behavior that was not good for them and it was not good for other people and in real despair and in real dismay. And at the level of public policy, you could just step back and and say, this isn't going to be good. I mean, this cannot, people are going to draw lessons from this that will be enduring, that what happens when we don't put people in jail is urban disintegration at a level that is not tolerable. You're saying you created this pressure for something to be done. Yes, we had to go meet people's needs. We had to go get people and not meet people's needs while they were living in a park. People needed to not be living in a park. People needed to be living in a safe, secure environment where they could be, you know, sheltered from COVID transmission and also their really dire economic and physical circumstances could be addressed. So we, you know, took advantage, like a lot of communities did, of the fact that hotels were suddenly empty and many of them were trying to stay in business, trying to retain their staff. So they were 
willing to let people stay there who they would not normally have allowed, you know, under circumstances that they would not normally have allowed people without identification, people um, whose behavior was kind of concerning and disturbing to other guests. Well, there were no other guests. What did it look like in the early days? It was powerful. It was um, people came. I think that's the first and important finding that was so impactful. You know, there had been in 2019 in Seattle, pumped out through Fox News, there was a, a rising framework, uh, sort of right-wing framework to discuss homelessness and drug use, saying that people decline services, that people don't want help. And, you know, you should offer help. Sure, we're not about punishment. You know, you should go offer help. But if people won't take help, then we have no choice. We have to either use coercive means or scatter people to the margins of society. We went out and proved that that was not true. We offered people decent conditions that, you know, hotels, by definition, they're selling their rooms to people who have a choice about where to go. So they're nice. They're pleasant. They were non-congregate. People had privacy. They could shut a door. They had an included bath. They had televisions, which, you know, most of us spent 2020 trying to avoid (laughs) fear by watching TV. It, It works really well. It's a great anxiety alleviator. Well, unlike other homeless shelter options, these places had television. And then we were going to have care teams on site that promised to not kick people right out the door if they proved to be who they are, you know, people who were using drugs and were in pretty chaotic conditions. Everyone who came in is, you know, was diagnosable with substance use disorder. And everybody that came in was anticipated to continue using drugs. So that was one of the main and important things that we were communicating to people while inviting them in, that they wouldn't be kicked out. How did that work? It was no different than people drinking in their rooms. I will say mechanically that in 2020, heroin use was the primary drug of choice for most people. And heroin could be injected in somebody's room without that being, you know, posing problems for others. Uh, The main issue was when we were having people not be in each other's space because of COVID, the idea of don't use alone is challenging. So we had to develop sort of a buddy system and awareness and, uh, but we did work that out. Once in 2021, the um, sort of primary drug of choice became smoked fentanyl. So smoking blues, Um, that posed different challenges because it really isn't, you know, (laughs) to begin with, you don't smoke anything in a hotel room, right? Like whether it's an illicit substance or not, you just don't smoke in a hotel room. And if you do, it can get pretty unpleasant for everybody and for future use of the room. So we had to create spaces where people could smoke outside. And we did. And that was just, you know, the smoking tent. (laughs) This sounds like the supervised consumption site you'd been pushing for. It is that function. But the key point, right, is that it's embedded in a larger system of care that both has the potential to more rapidly stabilize and address people's needs, comprehensive needs, and it does. So I think in that way, it's like supervised consumption, but embedded in this larger project that really resonates with almost everybody. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Over the last three years, Lisa's hotel shelter system has morphed into a program called Just Care, which helps get unsheltered people into permanent homes. Outreach workers start by talking to local business owners to find out where homeless people are congregated. Then they get to work. First contact is often an offer of supplies like clean needles or warm socks, a tray of Costco muffins. Then workers ask people what it is they need to come inside. So far, the results have been promising. Just Care has cleared out 22 encampments, and participants have a 70% move-on rate when it comes to permanent housing. The same rules still apply. Being sober is not required to get a bed. There are challenges, though. Just Care is always in danger of running out of funding, and as the pandemic faded and hotels reopened to guests, they did lose some of the rooms they've been using. Still, Lisa and her colleagues are committed to proving that public safety and a humane approach to homelessness can coexist. And they found that people are much more open to supervised drug use when it's part of a larger vision. If you associate this work with improvement in public order, not at the level of data, but at the level of felt impact in a place, that is very popular. And people can really hear the people who are living in an encampment, you know, in front of your business block, we're almost all using drugs and we're involved in the illicit economy and it was really miserable. And they're like, yeah, I know it looked terrible. Also it was hard for my business. We're like, great. So we've got people, we've, everybody's come in voluntarily. We didn't displace anyone. Now we're going to start working on their issues. Of course, everyone coming in is a drug user. People are like, yeah, that makes sense. Because you just paired that work with a obvious, dramatic improvement in their public safety situation. And these things have to go together. (laughs) I think that is the learning that we've experienced through just tackling the exact same practices, but through another door is, boy, this is a lot easier to sustain. And you have a lot more allies when it's the public safety strategy. I want to talk about this chatter I heard on Fox News like back in July, which was, I mean, Seattle has come up as a sort of vision of what can go wrong in the urban world a number of times in the conservative media. But like, for instance, this summer, there was a lot of attention paid to one homeless encampment in particular, which was right by a retirement community. And it generated outrage because someone had 
brought a pool in. Residents in a Seattle neighborhood furious that an illegal homeless encampment has now installed a swimming pool. People living there have been seen smoking fentanyl, but the city has refused to act despite residents. And so, you know, the response was, of course, like, oh, my gosh, like, first of all, this is dangerous. And second of all, oh, just like the flagrant abuse of this space. And it's right near these people who are elderly and trying to live their lives. And it's dangerous. Can you explain how Just Care responded to that? Mm-hmm. So that encampment had been elevated on our list of resolutions to work on because of pressure from this retirement community. And appropriately so, I do want to name like, just because Fox News is hyping the alarm factor up doesn't mean that the people living right adjacent to this um, encampment were wrong. It was pretty dire conditions for the people in the encampment, also pretty dire conditions for the people in the retirement community. They had been shot at, they had been, there had been a lot of theft. Um, There was really aggressive graffiti sort of targeting the retirement community with threats. Um, Now, of course, most of the people living in the encampment didn't participate in any of these things, but it was an alarming situation and they were asking for help, asking for help. There was no help. There was no help. So we had begun doing an initial assessment and then ended up at the retirement community doing a community meeting to explain what we were, the approach that we were going to take. How did the community meeting go? It was actually a really great meeting, which you wouldn't have known from the outtakes on right-wing social media, because the residents were upset. And honestly, anybody would be, given the way that things had been going. We call the police. We're not calling the police just because. We're calling the police because we need help. And nine times out of ten, the police don't do anything. They don't do anything. If they're stealing the cars out of my residence, out of the garage, they can't chase them. That's a problem, but they're still in my residence cars. They're coming but the focal the- point of a lot of tension that night was our representing that most people will accept offers of care and services that match their needs. They didn't believe you? No, the people won't. You know, they laughed. Um, not everybody, but some people laughed and some people, you know, clearly thought we were naive. And of course, the response is just, I know that you think that this is naive, we'll come back in six weeks and you will be able to find out. Either we're right or we're wrong, but we're confident because we've done this 14 other times or, you know, actually more than that. Anyway, the next couple days, the lady with the pool, who was wonderful, by the way, she she had the pool because it was really hot in Seattle this summer, as everywhere. But it was more the sense of permanency. Like, apparently, this is just how we're doing it in America these days is people just live on hillsides plastic pools, and that's just how it's going to be. That was what people were reacting to. So the fact that she moved in to our facility a couple days later, and she dismantled the pool willingly, that had a big impact. That was definitely seen and helped to establish credibility for this type of approach. Did the woman with the pool know she'd become such a lightning rod? Yes, she was really eloquent in her she gave a lot of interviews and she was really eloquent (laughs) in defending that you know if this is where you're going to live you have to have some amenities you can't just live in you know a dirt pile you have to try to make your place nice and really in a different time and place anyone could relate to that we too deserve to have um a cool off um 
anybody can have a pool. Everybody can enjoy their time, you know, in the summer. We don't do a whole lot of intermingling in the community. Why not have a pool here so we can enjoy it in our own space? But she um, was equally, I think the thing that was lost on the left is she did not want to live in this encampment, right? This was not her idea of a great plan. She was just making the best of it. And so she wanted something too. We cannot get caught up in defending like, oh, it's fine for people to live like this. It is not fine for people to live like this. And it is crucial that progressives who oppose punitive or sweeps responses not hand that agenda over to the right wing. You can't let the right be right about people shouldn't live here. No, people shouldn't live here. And most of the people living there don't want to be living there. Hmm. When's your follow-up meeting with the retirement community? This is the final week of work. And so probably next week we'll be going back. Is it gone? Is the whole, is the whole encampment gone? No, because I mean, most of the people are gone or about to be gone. We we've moved a few people like the lady with the pool for specific reasons, but, um, and you know, some, a health issue or a guy with a wheelchair who really, it's just super hard for him to get around there. But, um, the scheduled moves are all, you know, wrapping up this week. And then there will be a giant pile of debris, um, to be taken away by the, that people voluntarily left stuff that they chose not to take. And that'll be cleaned up by the state and by the city of Seattle cleanup team, which is really a great partner. And then it'll be as if there weren't, you know, 80 people living there or staying there. Do you think the intervention would have worked if there wasn't like the threat that if you don't leave and go to the place that we've found, the cleanup will happen anyway? We tend to more use the fact that people don't want to live there if there's something better. That is really, that that window won't stay open forever, right? So people are responding positively to those incentives rather than to a negative sense of, well, if you don't take this, then everything will be swept away and you know, you'll just be off on your own. I mean, that might be true at some level, but that's not the why of it. Um, that is how sweeps go down is that a team walks out and says, this place is scheduled for closure imminently. And here's what I've got. And you either take what I've got, which is usually not even adequate for everybody out there numerically, but certainly not like a good fit for most of the people or you don't, but either way you can't be here. That is not how we approach this. We know people's needs so well that what we're working on with them is a response to their needs. And we're working to make that happen sooner rather than later, because why not? And then people see other people leaving voluntarily, right? Because they got something that works for them. In this one in Cameron, I will say there are a couple of people out of the, you know, original scores and scores and scores of people who have indicated that they're not going and they're not staying, you know, they're they're going to sort of melt into the surrounding woods. There are many encampments where we've left with a plan for each person. That is not true here. They're just a couple people who are not uh, not going to stay and they're not going to come with us. But it's not because we wouldn't have worked on a plan for them and they know that. Does that feel like a failure in some way? No, I think that there are some people who they have not experienced society having a place for them for so long that 
this would take, it would take, you know, a decade of therapy if the person was housed and had all the resources in the world. It's just really understandable that some people are not willing to, and I think there's a degree of, I have made my peace with this, but if I were to try something, it could be taken away from me. And I just don't want to, ch- I don't want to let, I don't want to depend on anyone else. Ugh, that's just, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. And though we keep track of people, right? We have a what's called by name list. So these people are not lost to this experience. And even the people who melt into the woods. Yes. If we find those people again, and we will find those people again, you know, we can pick up where we left off and we just have to keep trying. That is the community solutions approaches. Keep trying until you succeed. Um, but it's important that the site be resolved so that the retirement community, public officials, and the larger neighborhood see that you can make progress without using brutal means or punitive means or inhuman means. For all that Just Care has accomplished, the group still has plenty of detractors. Organizations like the right-wing think tank the Cicero Institute claim that giving the homeless housing before offering them addiction treatment does not encourage people to find work or get sober and can even make homelessness worse. But a lot of it is because there's nobody teaching them about recovery, about accountability, about being productive, and you can get out of this. It's okay. Stay there on the ground. They actually produced a documentary, along with PragerU, about all this. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes because it doesn't look at the individual. It doesn't look at what his or her potential is, and it doesn't help them develop that. To say that um, all we're going to do is help them aspire to be like that for the rest of their lives by sticking them in a house and not addressing, excuse me, the issues, it's, it's horrible. I think it's one Surprisingly to me, Lisa says her skeptics have a point here. We use a methodology of always ask, what is this person right about? So those groups are not entirely wrong. That some of the low barrier harm reduction based methodologies are insufficient. I mean, they do meet people where they're where they're at, and they do leave people there. And you know, not because of lack of care, but just because of lack of resources. Right? Um, nothing profoundly transformative is going to happen as a result of just distributing safer use supplies because you're not actually able to offer somebody a road to true stabilization and recovery. It's a way of creating a relationship, but the relationship then doesn't have the resources to really tackle. So it's fine for us to acknowledge that. And I think that's the right response to these critiques is to say, I mean, it's not always untrue. Um, Some permanent supportive housing is truly transformational and some permanent supportive housing is, you know, sort of putting somebody in a very small room with no common space and not really expecting a lot to continue to evolve in their lives thereafter. Well, we shouldn't be about that. The painful part of right-wing critiques of Housing First are the ones that have a kernel of truth. Don't make a low ceiling for how well someone can do. Don't assume that someone's just going to use drugs for the rest of their lives and in a debilitating way that puts them at risk. And that's just how it's going to be. Lisa, I'm really grateful for your time and for your work. Thank you for the conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you for coming on the show. You bet. Lisa Dugard is a criminal justice reform activist. 
and the co-executive director of the nonprofit organization Purpose Dignity Action. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. Special shout out to Elena, who produced all of these pieces we've been working on this month. Thanks, Elena. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.